people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Un mot, un seul. Deauville. Mmh, belle gueule de voyou. Ce Bob, c'est un de vos indicateurs Vous voulez pas dire Bob le Flambeur Si, si. Enfin, qui êtes-vous Une amie Et toi, t'étais le répété Un Marc. Oui, mais j'y croyais pas. Quand Cette nuit. Casse-toi, t'as compris Mais Bob, j'aime bien aider les hommes qui se mouillent pour le bon. Mais des mecs comme toi, jamais. Quand Monsieur Bob doit venir, plus rien n'existe. Je te défends de marcher dans ce coup-là. Enfin, non, je te défends. T'as compris Le principal, c'est qu'on fasse arrêter ton équipe de truands et qu'ils ne sachent pas d'où vient le coup. Si ton affaire craquait et que tu te fasses arrêter, tu tiendrais pas le coup, mon vieux. T'as passé l'âge. À quoi tu penses À ton vison ou à ta cadillac Aux deux. d'ange à numéro 8. C'est mon chiffre. des boîtes de nuit. Le chant. C'est le soir où la ficelle m'a duré dessus quand j'allais l'arrêter. Bob était là et il a détourné le coup. Au lieu de te mouiller, si t'as besoin de pognon. Oh, soyez tranquille, monsieur. Nous avons un système de sécurité unique dans le monde.
welcome to the projection booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Andrew Leovold. Great to be here at quarter past six in the morning. French Month continues with a look at Jean-Pierre Melville's Bob Le Flambert, released in 1956. The film was the first of many gangster films directed by Jean-Pierre Melville, based on his story with dialogue by Auguste Le Breton. It's the story of Roger Duchesne as the titular Bob, an aging man who has robbed a bank 20 years prior and now spends his time going from game to game, craps, cards, whatever you got, even as a slot machine in his Montmartre apartment. We'll be discussing a lot more of the plot, including spoilers as we go along. So if you don't want anything ruined, just go ahead and turn off the podcast and come back after you've seen the movie. You will not regret it. So Sam, when was the first time you saw Bob Le Flambert and what did you think? I want to say it was anywhere from like 10 to 15 years ago. It was one of the first Melville films I saw and I expected it to be more like Le Samurai or Le Dulos, which are, for anyone who hasn't seen them, more kind of straightforward, dark, gritty film noir movies. And I was so blown away by how different this is. And definitely the moment I saw that scene where he opens his closet and there's a slot machine in it, I I was just in love. And Andrew, how about yourself? Wow, I'd I'd love to say that I grew up with this film uh, because I feel like I know it like an old friend. But uh, no, I I was so used to that original trilogy of uh, Alain Delon's, you know, Le Samurai, Le Cirque Rouge, um, Flick. I realized at some point, maybe less than 10 years ago, that I wasn't aware of Melville's earlier films. And I quickly decided to rectify that, and I worked my way backwards. And when I finally got to Bob Le Flambeau, oh my God, it was, uh, I, I realized that I was at Melville year zero, as far as his crime films were concerned. And it was a revelation, because not only was it so radically different to the Elaine Delon films, but it also was a continuation and also a break from all of those other French crime films um, that I'd been soaking in for, you know, the last 20, 25 years. So, yeah, probably about seven or eight years ago, Bob came into my life and, uh, you know, with his impermeable and his white hair looking like an albino Brian Ferry. Then, of course, that was around about the time that uh, I started going to Paris and, and um, went to Montmartre and, and Pigalle and went, oh, my God, I'm, I'm in Bob's world. I, I, I suddenly got exactly what Melville was trying to capture in Bob Le Flambeau. That's definitely one of my favorite things about this is that Montmartre is a character. Yeah, not only is it a character, it, it completely dominates the film. And uh, every time... Bob goes to the window, you know, and opens up the curtains. Uh, I mean, it's almost always darkness outside, but you see Sacre Coeur, the big church on top of the on top of the hill, illuminated and completely dominating the mise en scène. You know, like like this kind of uh, all seeing eye of God watching over the proceedings. Uh, that's one thing that I love about it that you can't escape fate. 
in this film. And and fate seems to be represented by that enormous illuminated building just completely casting its massive shadow over the film. I think this was the second Melville film I ever saw. I remember just being so giddy when I found a copy of They Do Low at a uh, blockbuster in Southfield, Michigan. And I don't remember where I found Bob Ab, but this was obviously during the time when it was really difficult to find these films. And you were just kind of lucky if you were able to locate any of them. I found it very interesting going through all of the old clippings and seeing that Bob was re-released in the early 80s, mid 90s, and even, I want to say 2001. Just these periods of time, it was almost like uh, cutting down a tree and looking at the rings by looking at the dates on these articles, because it was just suddenly all of these articles were being written all at the same time. And it was there was one that was part of a bigger uh, Melville show, uh, a whole series of his 13 films. And then other times it was just Bob being re-released. So I don't know if I'd heard of it during that time, but I obviously was getting familiar with Melville after I saw the Dulo. The thing that I loved about this movie, and I'll just put it out there right now, you know, I'm, I was a huge fan of Rafifi and a, a big fan of some other French crime films. And this one being a heist film that doesn't have a heist is one of the best things ever. And I love how Melville almost literally takes us by the hand, you know, him doing the voiceover of this film, him introducing things, him really playing with cinema. I mean, even just like how he comes on, it's like, this is the story of, and then like Bob LaFlembert, you know, the title card comes up and all the credits and just he'll interject himself just at the right times, you know, especially the beginning where he's talking about how Malmar represents you know, heaven with the sacre-coeur and then he shows the funicular and the music just descends. And then he talks about in hell. And then we see all of Pigal. Bob is there in both worlds. He's constantly going from hell of Pigal up to the heaven of his apartment. So much of this movie takes place at Bob's apartment. And so much of it is crucial to Bob's apartment, especially when it comes to the relationship he has with Anne and Paolo and being a very young prostitute and Paolo being his protege. And I think at one point they say that Bob used to work with uh, his father. And when his father died, Bob kind of took Paolo under his wing. And it's this whole thing of loyalty. I mean, the things that we talked about last year or two years ago, whenever, yeah, we talked what the circle Rouge last year, we talked about they do two years ago, all of these, the rules and the, the nobility of the criminals. I mean, that really starts in this movie and you really get to see the seeds of those later films in this one it feels almost more like his early melodramas like it's it's not even just a heist film without a heist it's like an anti-heist film it's like he clearly spends so much more of the narrative focus exploring montmartre and these characters and their relationships to each other and i don't I don't know if you remember this, but when you and I first sort of became friends online, it was around this period where I had seen Bobble Flamber because I think I got the disc during that great sort of Netflix disc rental period. And I had seen that. I saw Le Samurai and I decided, okay, I'm going to watch every single one of these films. And I sort of did 
kind of a version of what Andrew did. And instead of like strictly working in reverse order, I basically just watched all the films I could easily find. Those early melodramas are still not very accessible. And Mike, I don't know if you remember this, but you helped me find When You Read This Letter, which was impossible to find at the time. But I think because that comes so close to Bob Flambeur, it it feels like this very strange, unexpected kind of bridge between that more traditional French melodrama and the crime films that he would make after this. It's always such a surprise showing this to people for the first time. It's such a movie about relationships and just the way that Bob has, he basically has two children between Anne and Paolo, the way that he protects both of them, the relationship he has with his friend Roger, uh, the relationship that he has with the uh, police inspector, Ledru. I mean, this is that first time that we get to see that relationship between the cop and the robber and i'm a huge fan of john woo and so seeing this and seeing you know being a fan of the killer and i'm just like oh this is the origins this is where we're seeing this stuff and i i absolutely love that that there's this whole thing where i think ledrew says oh a guy had a a gun on me and bob moved his hand Maybe he was doing it so that the guy didn't go to prison for life, or maybe he did it out of the goodness of his heart. I don't know. And you don't know about Bob, and you don't know where he's coming from all the time, but you hope and wish for the best for him. You just feel like he's this kind of knight errant and is on the right, even though he's horribly addicted to gambling, loses everything throughout the the film gains it back, loses it again. I mean, it's it's really awful to see just how gambling has such a hold on this poor guy, but that's his whole thing, and this fickle finger of fate, and just how luck either is with him or not with him. And does he make his own luck? I'm not sure. Yeah, I think the entire film is almost constructed like a game of roulette, because we keep going back to that roulette wheel and, and, and the ball-dropping seemingly at random into the various numbers and 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 i think that's the feeling that you do get from the film that uh the whole thing is is a game and it's being decided by forces larger than bob the other thing that i i really get from the film is the key to understanding melville's universe is realizing that this is all about pre-war paris and in melville's film universe you know you have pre-war france and then you have what happens during the war and, and the repercussions uh, of World War II. And World War II is such a rupture within this universe that it completely upends the, the noble order of things. And so Bob being this creature of, of uh, that pre-war noble universe, he experiences that betrayal, you know, the, the rupture in the order when he is betrayed by his compatriots and and inadvertently betrayed by the girl that he loves and protects seemingly as a daughter but i suspect you know that that he does have uh, feelings for her and melville actually says in melville on melville he was in love with the girl <laughs> so I, I think you know this this um feeling of being betrayed is part of the division of pre-war and war slash post-war France that that Melville is almost fetishistically trying to create within his crime films and also within his World War II films. 
everyone's potentially a member of the Gestapo. Everyone's potentially out to sell them out to the secret police. The chief of police, paradoxically here, is also part of that previous order. And there's that beautiful relationship between the two that only pre-war France would have been able to maintain. That's one of the things that really drew me to his films early on is they have this sense of being very like set in a specific time period in some ways because of the costumes and the cars and the style, but also having this sense of being very kind of out of time. If you have directors who make period piece films, it's like I've seen some critics try to argue that some of Melville's films are like that, but it's exactly what you're saying, I think. It's, It's like he's setting them in this fantasy version of the past that's not the real past. It's this like ideal that he has in his head, especially in terms of these masculine values of honor and, you know, how how loyal are you and what are your morals? And it's obvious, I think, with this film more than any other that he made after the way that he really idealizes what Bob represents. It's just this like, universally beloved guy those early scenes almost remind me of like disney's beauty and the beast where she walks down the street and everyone says hello to her and it's like every every place bob goes everyone's so excited to see him it's like how often do you see characters that are that sort of whimsical in gangster movies (laughs) absolutely and and it is a it's a construct you know just as pigal in bob la flambeau is is a construct. It, it exists somewhere in a kind of filmic twilight world that's partly Melville's own past and also uh, a Pagal that's been filtered through this fetishistic obsession with Hollywood and specifically pre-war Hollywood. Bob is an archetype. You know, he may have reminded Melville of, of the kind of characters from the Demimon that, that uh, he would have grown up next to in the 20s and 30s, but he's also a Hollywood hero wearing a Hollywood-style trench coat and hat. He would fit right into some of the earlier gangster films that were coming out of Hollywood, to your point. I mean, that there are so many feelers that go back into John Huston's The Asphalt Jungle. Melville's pretty open about how much he loved that film and how much that film influenced this film. But it is so vastly different. I mean, especially at the end of it. I mean, both of them end a little bad. It's it, This is somewhat film noirish, but the asphalt jungles ending will just like carve the heart out of you. Whereas this one, it ends on a joke, which is fantastic. And you never know where it's going to go, even though they, you know, Goodart tried to uh, tell us what happened with Bob when we come to Breathless in a few years. But yeah, fuck that guy. Um rather just think of Bob getting that good lawyer and suing for damages and go, getting away with like the 800 million francs. That's fantastic. But yeah, the, this whole idea of Bob being this film noir character, I mean, it, you're right. It, it, they even make a reference about how Bob looks like a Hollywood gangster. And then it's like, oh, well, Hollywood gangsters are actually based on French gangsters instead. So it's like, okay, sure. But Melville loves American films, loves American cars. Bob loves American cars. I'm surprised Bob doesn't wear 
the same kind of Stetson cowboy hat that Melville did, but there are a lot of similarities between Bob and Melville and this whole love of the, the milieu is definitely one of them. But to Andrew's point, I think Bob definitely, even though he has these similarities to Melville in some degree, Bob does experience that betrayal, but he's definitely this kind of pre-World War II character who doesn't have that kind of like violence and darkness that I think Melville had because of his experiences in the Resistance and that all of his characters after Bob LaFlember have. He has this like, even though the film does have all of these more downbeat notes in the second half, Bob just has this kind of like lightness and resilience that makes the ending kind of confusing because it seems like it should it should feel like a happy ending. Like he's probably not going to go to jail. He won all this money and they didn't even have to rob the casino. But at the same time, it doesn't. It's like very mixed emotions throughout. When you're wondering why is he even going ahead with the robbery when he knows, I mean, he's getting betrayed multiple times and he knows he's getting betrayed. He's got Paolo who spills the beans to Anne because she's trying to impress her. She spills the beans to what's the guy's name? Mark, the pimp. And then Mark is on the hook with Ledru to give him something. Otherwise he's going to get arrested or kicked out of France type of thing. There's that going on. And plus there's the other betrayal, which is the croupier and his wife, his very harpy of a wife. Who's just like, we need more money. You need to get us more money or else we're going to tell the cops. And so after LeDru gets an earful from Mark, he then gets an earful from the croupier's wife. And it's like, okay, wow. And, and Bob is well aware at one point that there was this betrayal of Paulo to Anne to Mark. And he's not sure if Mark went to LeDru or not, but it's enough that he should just call the whole thing Yeah, off. but he's a gambler. You know, he's Bob LaFlamber, not Bob Le extremely careful. It's in his DNA to roll the dice or, or spin the roulette wheel in the, in this case and take that ultimate gamble to see if he can get away with it. I think that was the whole point of it all, to see if his gamble pays off. And paradoxically, wins all that money and then emerges in the middle of a gunfight completely unscathed. I mean, it, it, it seems like the gambling gods were smiling upon him. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not uh, completely in agreement with him, but he does manage to, um, you know, slide through magically, I think. And there's the magic of, of the film, you know. You know, you made this point earlier about how there's this issue of sort of fate always winning out, especially in Melville's later films where fate seems particularly angry. But here, the story does go through those beats that you described of, you know, we see him winning some money and losing some money, and it's just this constant up and down. But it seems like, like, the more times I watch this, it seems like that's what Bob wants, is he wants that kind of instability and unpredictability. And that's what's exciting to him about life, is sort of, he has this Montmartre Pigalle ecosystem where there is this moral code, and if you don't follow the moral code, you get shot at the end of the film. But it's like that quality of things being up and down, it's not as tragic as I think it f 
feels in maybe later Hollywood movies where you see people, you know, in something like Leaving Las Vegas, where there's all this kind of gambling and drinking excess. Or Jimmy Khan in The Gambler. That's that's another one of the rates of fatal stick. But, but here you get this this sense that like it's not as fatalistic because he has this community to support him and he supports other people within it and i think maybe that's what gives it that sort of pre-war kind of wholesomeness there's a very innocent quality about it despite the fact that he's a hard-boiled hard-bitten gambler there's magic around him you know he is kind of like the the snow white (laughs) sprinkling pixie dust he is. On, on everyone in, in Pigal, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, when you find out that the bartender, that she had this dream of opening up a bar and he's the one that staked her. And it feels like he doesn't want anything back by that. He just wanted to help her out. And he just feels, yeah, super magnanimous. It doesn't feel like he's there conniving and wheedling and saying, oh, if I do this for you, you do this for me. Yes, magnanimous is the right word for him. He is this... Saint of Pigal, that he is there to experience fate at every turn, go to the horse races and win big on William of Orange or whatever it is. Prince the, the Prince of Orange. Prince of Orange. <laughs> and then go to Monte Carlo and, and lose the whole thing. Just in an afternoon, he can go from riches to absolute destitution just in an afternoon. And it's unusual for him, too, to be out during the daytime. He's almost a little bit of a vampire in this film with the way that he is only going around at night. And I love that at the beginning when they show Anne versus the cleaning woman and how it's this whole thing of like, you know, Anne's day is wrapping up while the cleaning lady is just beginning and that they kind of cross paths there in Pigal. And it's very much like everybody else is waking up and Bob's finally going to bed because he's all night just gambling going from game to game to game at the beginning of the episode when andrew mentioned that he you know is in an australian time zone and is calling in at 6 a.m it made me think like oh this is around the time when bob will be getting home from gambling (laughs) (laughs) what have you been doing all night my god by the way has anyone got a spare 20 bucks they might be able to lend me uh we keep talking about fate. We haven't brought up God at all. Sacre Coeur being there is very, very godlike. But I'm very surprised that when it comes to there's an, an amazing shot of Bob making a decision, you know, kind of flipping his, his two headed coin, where he's making the decision whether to drink coffee or cognac. And I found it interesting that Melville doesn't give us a, a quote unquote God's eye view of him, that it's a little bit more like upper and over the shoulder shot of him making that decision. Cause I could really see him going all out and being like, here, let me give you the God's eye view over this whole set and having Bob making this, like walking to one, then walking to the other, and then finally going for the cognac, like he should, but yeah, I, I I was glad that he wasn't as literal as that. I don't know if it's just that the studio that he had that he was shooting this in wouldn't have allowed for that, but I think Melville would have, could have and would have done whatever the fuck he wanted. And that's always the thing with Melville, even in this early stage of his work where it feels feels very rough. This feels almost like proto new wave to me. And I, I love it though. I love that it has that feel to it, that it feels like what you guys were trying to do in like a few years here, Melville's already doing this stuff right now. Well, I don't think you get a God's eye view. You get a Bob's eye point of view. It, 
slightly above Bob. Uh, and and Bob flipping a two-sided coin means, I think, literally, that he is the uh, ultimately the master of his own fate. You find out at the very end that the coin that he uses it has the same thing on both sides, which I think really underscores that the final note is he is master of his own fate. He's making it himself. And so if it has its ups and downs, that's something he desires. And this relationship with Roger, Roger just is going along with him the entire time when he does make all of these bets on a coin. And it's just like, you know, oh, I knew that was a two-headed coin all this time. And then Bob coming back with, well, I knew you knew that it was a two-headed <laughs> coin all this time. <laughs> it's like, what a swap, motherfucker. Jumping briefly back to your point about the new wave, when I was watching Bob... Uh, yet again this morning, I was thinking about Melville's use of his own voice for the voiceover narration. That must be where Godard got it from, because he does it from his very first short films. And it's crazy to think that, like, basically without this film, you, I think, would get a very different new wave, because it seems like they're just pulling directly from him. Well, yeah, I didn't realize how other filmmakers like i i knew that melville showed up in breathless and him doing that whole thing of uh i want to become immortal and die that whole day <laughs> it's so good <laughs> but, but i forgot that he was in a chevrolet film and did he have something to do with truffaut as well or am i just making that up I don't think so. I knew that he knew or he knew all of them because of their early connection to the the cinema clubs because they all started reviewing films and were all big fans of of his movies. But I know that I also know that pretty early into Godard's career, Melville was like whatever you're doing is bullshit and they stopped being friends. <laughs> I suspect that um, all of those guys who became the new wave, and we can never include Melville in any sort of club because Melville was just out there on his own and refused to join, you know, any club that wanted him as a member. <laughs> you know, I, I think that those guys all had the same sort of love-hate relationship as they did with American pop culture in general and and you know the conventional cinema of the US the the genres that they were riffing on and the the films that Melville deliberately embraced you know they would have had a problematic relationship with those because they're they're simultaneously trying to embrace them and also debase them and i think they did that with Melville as well they would cite him as an influence and then tear strips off his new film and say, oh, you know, how bourgeois, how disgustingly pro-American, pro-Hollywood. Yeah, I think Melville occupied that really sort of uh, thorny ground between the new wave and the uh, Hollywood establishment and also the, the French film establishment that would have been seen as collaborators with the, with the dreaded Americans. I think what I was thinking of was that he was in a Romer film, uh, Sign of the Lion. But also, so was Godard, so was Rene. So there were a lot of uh, other folks in that one with him. But 
that's what I was thinking. It wasn't the Truffaut. I think the Truffaut connection is that the guy that plays Ledru uh, ends up going and being in the 400 blows. I think that's as close as we got with that. I love Ledru. I absolutely love Ledru, and I love his attitude. I love the guy's face. Just it, it, he's one of these great, great faces that we have. I mean, you talked a little bit about the uh, albino uh, Brian Ferry look of Bob. All of these people have these great, great faces in here, and this it, it, it was so nice to see. And I, I swear that Bob has a little bit of uh, a Jean Gabin look to him, but much more lean and hungry than Gabin had looked in a while. He definitely has a sort of classier edge. Like earlier when you were talking about how you were surprised that Melville didn't put him in one of those Stetson hats, which which he loved. And I just can't imagine that happening because Bob has this very specifically kind of old world style and class. And a lot of the older male characters in this film have that, whereas the younger male characters, even if they are wearing sort of similar clothing, they come off way more gangster-like because they just don't have the same kind of ease and presence and that that like self-assurance that that Bob seems to have. Well, you know what all these young guys are? They're post-war punks and they would be in Melville's universe, not like that suave pre-war guy who struts around and looks into the mirror periodically just to make sure that he's maintaining his gangster cool. That part is so great because he, like the first time I saw this, I remember thinking like, okay, here's this sort of suave, distinguished, older guy who for some reason is up at seven in the morning and says he's going to bed, but stops at a bar and at another gambling game first. And so for him to look at himself and and say that like, oh, it's a real gangster's face or a real hood's face. It's like, is it? Yeah. I love that. That's his first line too, that he doesn't say that he's going to bed, that instead he just like, yeah, puts his hand head on his hands like he's going to. So that the first line is that whole a fine hoodlum's face when he's looking at himself in that dirty mirror. And it's like, oh, that's so good. There's so many moments that, that I'm just like so excited when I watch this movie. Like when they get the uh, the safe crack stuff and they hook up the big loudspeaker to it so that they can hear where the tumblers are. And I'm just like, oh, that's so cool. Or when he has the uh, chalk outline of the DeVille casino out on this field. And I'm just like, that is so cool that he's doing this whole thing with the floor plan. I mean, there are so many great moments like that. And I love, I mean, I think it's like an hour into the movie and Melville comes back in the soundtrack and he's just like, this is the way Bob wanted it to go. And then we get to see the heist take place in the middle of the movie and we get to see it go off without a flaw. And then we get to see how bad everything fucks up after that. This feels like the anti-Rafifi. He's like, okay, so we're going to spend all this time getting the gang together and working on our strategy. But here, those moments where they're planning the heist, it feels like just a reason for them to hang out together. Like it doesn't have that like, that sort of anxious sense of purpose that a lot of other heist movies have. It's like, okay, here's where this should go. And it's almost like they're just having fun. Well, they've already planned it, and you've already seen the the planning in meticulous detail. 
it's like, why would we bother to even film the heist? We've done it. And so the, the actual heist itself would have been a, a really sort of dull afterthought. Melville being died in the wall contrarian and determined to be out there, you know, in a club of one. This was definitely the mischievous Jean-Pierre uh, saying, well, you know, I'm going to make it a heist, a heist film without a heist. And of course, the future new wave guys are all like, genius. <laughs> Let's make an anti-crime film. Let's make an anti-gangster film. You know, the, the idea of of doing something contrary to the film establishment would have been like, you know, like diving into a swimming pool full of cognac. It would have been intoxicating. Rewatching it this time and thinking about those kind of like weird sort of sometimes clumsy dissolves he has, you can totally see how the younger new wave directors were like, oh my God. There's a, a moment in the film where the camera Iris is in and Iris is out. And I think it's like, is this just to show that time has passed? I'm not really sure what's going on here. And I, I, in that dissolve uh, at the very end, when those guys are putting the money in the back of the car, and we just use a quick dissolve to be like, wow, there must have been a lot of money being put in the back of this car in order to have to do a dissolve in the middle of it. It's so perfect. And the, the fact that he's like, no sticky-fingered policeman now. Like, I earned this money. In heist films, you get the thing where it's, okay, we're going to practice it, we're going to do all these things, and then we're going to do the heist, and it's going to go wrong. Or you get the, I, I want to say it was like one of the Oceans movie where it's like, okay, and here's how it's going to go. And they basically talk you through the plan as the, the heist is happening. And in this one, you, yeah, you get that little bit of here's how the heist is supposed to go. And then I love when the, the night of the heist is happening and you get the whole like, okay, it's 3.30 a.m. All right, now it's 4. Now it's 4.30. And yeah, we're, we know that 5 o'clock is the magic hour. And just that Bob has completely forgotten about everything, that he is just in this reverie of winning now. And you occasionally get cuts back to the other guys who are just kind of waiting but they're not necessarily waiting on a signal. They don't seem to be waiting for Bob. It's not like they're going, oh, where is he? He was supposed to be here by now or anything. They just show up at the at the casino at 5 a.m. sharp. And, and by that time, Bob has cleaned out the casino completely legally. It's beautiful. They could have called the film Where's Bob? Or like Bob Goes Straight or something. <laughs> Because there's that mid-film sequence where it's like, this is how he wanted it to go. The implication, I think, especially if you've seen later Melville films first, is like, okay, well, if we saw this idealized version in the middle and we know that's what's not going to happen, everyone's going to die. But the fact that the ending is not really tragic and... Except for Paolo. Well, except for Paolo, but Paolo also, I think, by this kind of film noir logic... By betraying Bob, Paolo kind of had to die, at, at least in the scope of Melville films. The fact that he makes you kind of forget about the heist, and it, that's not what's carrying the tension or the narrative weight. It's just like, we're really excited to watch this guy gamble and win. The narrative imperative is what happens to Bob, you know, not what happens to the money. Because you're so invested in, in Bob winning, I guess. 
And that's really the beauty of it. It's not a love letter to Hollywood crime films. It's a love letter to characters like Bob and the world in which they inhabit. Bob definitely seems more connected to some of those uh, 30s poetic realism gangsters than he does Hollywood. Like, definitely a little of Jean Gabin's sort of, you just want the character to succeed, even though it seems like they're in for tragedy. I see a lot of parallels between Bob and Pepe Lemoco and just the way that Pepe is kind of stuck in the Casbah. And for me, Bob is there in Montmartre and he's not stuck there necessarily, but that's his world. And that's the world that he has chosen to live at. And for me, I totally agree. Paolo, he betrayed Bob and worse, he murders Mark while Mark is on the fucking phone with Ledru. I'm surprised that that didn't come to, to more, but it's this whole thing of like, I don't think Bob would use a gun if it came down to it. You know, I can see Bob holding a gun, but Bob just seems very much more like, oh no, I'm the planner. I'm this guy. I'm not going to go out and murder anybody. He can slap people really well. He gives Mark what for after he finds out that Mark has beat up Lydia, this woman that we never see who was, I guess, Mark's gal or maybe his piece that he had turned out because the one thing that Bob cannot stand is pimps. He just will not put up with any sort of pimp. He's absolutely fine with prostitution, but does not like pimps. And I can totally see that. He doesn't like the idea of men sponging off of women who are actually out there doing real work. In that same line of Bob wouldn't use a gun and his very gentlemanly qualities... There's also this great line, and I'm trying to remember the context in which it came up, but they're talking about, he, he's talking to some guys in a bar, and they're talking about how things used to be, and they're basically saying that, you know, hoods and gangsters in my early days would carry guns, but they wouldn't have any bullets in them, and now you have to have, like, now these young kids have bullets, is basically what they're saying. It's that whole pre-war versus post-war and what they're doing. And I mean, we're going to get that a whole lot more through the rest of Melville's films, especially when you get to something like Army of Shadows. Where the two universes collide in in brutally spectacular fashion. Yeah. This one is so light and fluffy compared to Army of Shadows, compared to a lot of his later films. But this one, yeah, it basically ends with a joke and it ends with the possibility that Bob is going to get away clean because Lady Luck came back and he was able to rob the casino by taking it for all that it was worth. And yeah, it's, it's a shame that Paolo died, but that gunfight, we have to talk about the gunfight where we don't ever see the guns actually shoot. We just kind of hear gun sound effects and they don't even like, you know, like shake their guns, like they're actually firing or anything. It was just like, I almost forgot how new wave this gunfight is that we're just going to do it where people just hold the guns. You hear the sound effects and then poor Paolo just keels over no blood or anything. And, you know, he, he's out of the picture and then Bob has to, you know, comfort him. I think he's got the little trickle of blood that comes out the side of his mouth where you're just like, oh, this guy's done for. Yeah, the gunfights as much of an afterthought as the heist would have been if they had bothered to film it. It's almost comedic. The first time I watched this, I just kind of assumed like this must be, you know, the work of a younger director who didn't really know what he was doing. And then when I finally saw all of his films, I kind of understood 
the context of this one. It's like, no, he knew exactly what he was doing. And he's just trying to tell you like this, this thing that you typically would care about in this kind of genre film, this trope. It's like, it doesn't matter. It's just an empty symbol. Well, he always described it as a comedy. And before watching Bob LaFlambeau, I thought, I can't imagine what a Melville comedy would look like. But here it is, you know, it has a semi-tragic ending, but but a light one. And it has almost comic cops shooting toy guns without any shots coming out of them. That, obviously, to Melville was extremely funny. And I'm sure Goddard would have had a wry chuckle at it, too. Oh, sure. And then co-opted a bunch of it for his, his first film. I don't know if either of you have seen Two Men in Manhattan, but tonally, it almost reminds me of that more than any of his other films. Because like even the early melodramas, even if they're about these sort of romances, they all feel really kind of grim and tragic from the beginning. And so not even they have the lightness that you see here. It's so strange. Uh, Two Men in Manhattan was deliberately playful, like Bob LaFlambeau. It's almost like a mirror film where you've got the Frenchman in in New York as opposed to the Hollywood-style gangster in Paris. So I've never watched them back-to-back, but I feel like that would make a really interesting double feature. Yeah, and uh, it was very nice. Uh, Jeanette Vincent do in her book, Jean-Pierre Melville and American in Paris, she groups those two in another film together, and I'm trying to remember which one it is, if it's Magnet of Doom or... It's definitely not the second breath, and it's not like do though. I think it's Magnet of Doom because they they have this like road trip. That's the one where he goes to the U. That's yeah, yeah, that's one. where Belmondo yeah. goes to the U.S. Yeah, Belmondo in a in a convertible driving through Texas. It's wonderful. It's like Paris, Texas, with laughs. And I'm so glad now that that one's a lot easier to find because that one for me for the longest time was the toughest Melville. You could not find that decent print of it anyway for any money in the world all considered he didn't make that many films and to have things like le Dulos and le samurai and le Cercle rouge be so acclaimed but like half of his films you could barely find for a while it's so weird because they're all great but i think there's even more books about him that are just french only that they're not translated at all it's like come on guys we we deserve it you know we like Melville over here as well. You should maybe think about it. So speaking of, let's go ahead. We're going to take a break. We'll return with an interview with Jeanette Vincent Du, the author of Jean-Pierre Melville and American in Paris, right after these brief messages. Hi, I'm Dave Kittredge, filmmaker in Los Angeles, and I'm the host of The Outcast, presented by Outfest, a new podcast where I have conversations with LGBT creators and allies to discuss their work, their inspirations, their passions, and the challenges of getting our authentic voices heard. I was scared because I thought, oh, what am I doing? Like, here I am selling my soul. But when I realized what the movie was, it's like, I'm in. Let's do, let's make this wonderful movie. The freedom of ad-libbing and letting things happen in the moment with Stephen Trask, let's write something that involves stand-up comedy drag punk rock it was so rebellious and precocious i guess the definition of gay to me is freedom women gave the show its life i feel like well, because it's also a bit of a hunk fest you guys are right, hot true. as hell you are too kind that was, only, <laughs> that was only 15 years ago it's a no holds barred talk with iconic creators and performers it's not f- 
white people. It's not, I hate white people. It's dear white people. It's how you start a letter. The whole climax of the show is a sex scene between Malkior and Vendla. And I remember feeling personally self-conscious about never having been with a woman in any way, shape, or form. I'm always thinking about the audience. Make them feel, make them laugh, and make them cry. I mean, that's as simple as it is for me. I had been not wanting to be a part of the film. It was clear in the edit that I had to, you know, really reshape it. So the film really told me what it needed to be. Cinema is an empathy machine, and, and it sort of allows you to see yourself in people's faces that you normally wouldn't see humanity in. I get emotional just talking about it. And the tea is definitely spilled. David, don't no. edit anything of this out. <laughs> no, no, they no. They don't want to hear all the charming stories. They want to hear the ugly, gory relationship that Jim and I have. <laughs> We're cutting that part out, by the way. And with guests like John Cameron Mitchell, Christine Vachon, Laverne Cox, Jonathan Groff, Justin Simeon, Jim Fall, Miss Coco Peru, Rachel Mason, Jeffrey Schwartz, H.P. Mendoza, and fabulous queens Shangela, Eureka, and Bob the Drag Queen. I'm sweating the house down. Oh, mama. You never know what's going to come up. You know me, I'm so big and strong that Eureka and Bob actually hide behind me and I protect She them. is quite the chihuahua, mama. She does pop up. I was up. like, wait, should we have had security the whole time? <laughs> I think they think I'm the security, bitch. It's season one of The Outcast, presented by Outfest, premiering in the summer of 2020. Hope you can join us. Before we even start to talk about Melville, I'm so curious about you. Can you tell me how you got into academia and writing about film? I'm French, obviously, and I studied English in Paris at the University of the Sorbonne, English language and literature. And then I moved to England theoretically for one year as part of my degree and then met my husband and saw that I stayed. And then I happened to be in a town called Norwich. This was in the mid-late 70s. And when Film studies was really beginning to be developed at the time. And where I was happened to be a place where there were a couple of the pioneers of studying film. And I always was a fan, a cinephile, I always loved the cinema. I started a women's film festival there while I was in that town and also started a PhD in film, which I did on French cinema in the 1930s with, and this is where I got interested in Jean Gabin and Pepe Le Moco, which you told me you like. And this is how it started. What was the first Melville film that you ever saw? Le Samurai. I saw it when it was reissued in the UK in 1996. I have to say, earlier on, when I was younger and in France and his films were coming out, I didn't really re- register with me. So it was later, and when Le, Le Samurai was reissued in 1996 in the UK, and I saw it, I was really blown over by it. I thought this is such a fantastically beautiful film. So I then became interested in Melville and started looking for his other films. And it's a, a little bit after that, I was commissioned to write a book. Somebody said, would you like to write a book about Melville for a particular collection for Manchester University Press? And in fact, I didn't do it for them because... Their books were very short, and I said, I think he deserves more. And so I then contacted the British Film Institute, and they said, yes, we'd like you to. So this is how the book came about. So it was really that moment of Le Samurai coming out, which for me marked my own interest in Melville. And I think a lot of people as well, because this is when his reputation, that moment, I think, marked the time when his reputation suddenly had a sort of second life. What kind of challenges were there writing a whole book about Melville and all of his films? In one sense, it was easy because Melville is somebody who made 
relatively few films since he made 13 feature films, which is relatively is a very containable number. As it happened, because this was the late 90s, they, were, they all became available on VHS and DVD. So I didn't have any problem accessing the material in terms of the films. The challenges were more to do with the lack of archival material, the lack of material on his life, the fact that he's a relatively mysterious person. But because I wasn't going to write a biography anyway, I was writing a book about his films primarily, and I had the films. So this made it much easier for me because I could really cover the whole career. One thing I love about your book is just the way that you position him in the entire landscape of French film and how his gangster films differed from the gangster films that were coming out before it or around it. I really love that. Oh, well, thank you. I mentioned writing my thesis about French cinema in the 1930s and the whole a chapter about Jean Gabin and got interested in the poetic realist films, of course, of the 1930s, many of which are crime films. And then a film like Pepe Moco is a kind of ancestor of the French gangster film. And I liked that so much that I wanted to see how this carried on after the war. And of course, Gabin himself was instrumental in the revival of the gangster film after the war with Touché par Grisby in 1954. And I was very interested in this particular genre of French crime films, crime movies, and as well as, yes, the whole landscape of French cinema. In that post-war period, when Melville emerges is a particularly interesting period, I think, for French cinema, because you have in parallel the popular genre films, like the gangster film, for instance, but you also have the beginning of the new wave in the late 50s of a kind of different kind of film. So I think Melville and certainly Bob Le Flambeau is a film that can be usefully seen as in between those traditions or belonging to both in a way. I always had an interest in popular French cinema, in the films that people actually like to see, as opposed to simply the great films that critics recognize. Now, of course, when you look at the 1930s, like for my thesis, they all sometimes were the same. So films like or Pepe Le Moco, they're, they're great films, like great filmmakers, but they're also extremely popular with the public. I'm always interested in how the films fare with the public, how they're embedded in the culture at the time. Melville was a perfect figure because he was both a very idiosyncratic figure, very original, unique, somebody who liked to control everything and made, uh, I think, his films like, or like no others, they're extremely recognizable. And at the same time, especially from 1961 onwards, they also they were very popular with the audience. He was a very well-known figure. So he lived in both worlds, in the sort of the cinema that the critics recognize, but also the cinema that people actually li like to go and see uh, in the cinemas uh, and films that did very well at the box office. And also because I have um, always since... Working on Gabba, I always had an interest in stars, in male and female stars. And of course, Melville's film from Léon Morin-Prête almost sort of used great stars of French cinema, like Alain Delon and uh, Jean-Paul Belmondo and so on. So, so uh, to me, it was a, a figure who combined all these different aspects of the cinema. And that made him really, I think, fascinating. Yeah, I, I love that idea that he's neither fish nor fowl, that he is new wave tradition of quality. But that just makes him stand apart from the crowd. That's right. Yes, yes. It's a very, very idiosyncratic figure. And also one of the interesting aspects, of course, which is uh, concentrated in his 
name already, his name, his looks, and so on, was that he was French filmmaker, but also very influenced by American cinema. He loved American films. And although I spent quite a lot of time in my book refuting the idea that his films were just copies of American films, which, which was one of the accusations that was made of his gangster films. Oh, he's just imitating American cinema. And I think he's not. He's making a very specific hybrid between the French uh, and the American tradition that also made him an interesting uh, sort of transnational figure to some extent. And that's why um, in my book, I had a subtitle which said an American in Paris. This was a, a Frenchman who looked, tried to look like an American with his Stetson, Stetson hat and big American cars and trench coats, a bit like figures in his film. And yet at the same time was completely a figure of post-war French culture. And in part also because he himself was part of history. He'd been in the resistance during the war. He, he was somebody very much embedded in French history, as well as completely fascinated with American culture and American cinema. The whole idea of him being in the resistance colors so much of his work, especially, I would say, some of the gangster films, and especially the idea of the honor and the code that some of these folks live by, as opposed to the younger generation, as opposed to some of the people that might have betrayed that code uh, that were around during the war. Melville made both gangster films, but when you look at his war films, especially Army in the Shadow, 1969, and you look at his gangster films, they're very similar. And people sometimes say he makes his war films like gangster films, and his gangster films are a bit like war films. And watching Bob Le Flambeau again the other night, I was reminded of how many references there are in the film to the period of the German occupation of France. The, and the look of the film, really, although it's made in 1956, it could have been 10 years before. It could have been during the, um, in the 1940s, during the German occupation. And there's constantly references in the dialogue to things are not the same anymore. Everything is rotten now. People don't respect the codes, which were the pre-war codes. And of course, it's veiled reference to the German occupation and the burden it placed on the French population, of course, and all the difficulties, but also this well-known ambiguity between the Gestapo, the collaboration forces, and the criminal underworld. And, and this well-known Gestapo used a lot of figures from the underworld. And so th there's a kind of blurred border between the two. And I think that the gangster films are very oblique sometimes and sometimes more direct references to that. One of the things which I, in fact, did not develop in my book, but subsequently I've been looking at is the figure of Roger Duchesne, the actor who plays Bob Le Flambeau, who himself was somebody who was implicated in fairly ambiguous way in activities of the Gestapo. He had links with the Gestapo. He was he had trouble with the law. He also went to jail at some point. So he's somebody who I think Melville used very deliberately as a kind of embodiment of that uh, very blurred boundary between the law and the criminal underworld that was much more in evidence during the war. And also if you look at Bob Le Flambeur, the look of the film, the cars that are used, the famous Citroën Traction Avant, the big black cars, which in the film that are used both by the police and by the gangsters, and they're very typical of that period, a film that you could be during the occupation, is both historically accurate to some extent, but also something which Melville uses for stylistic purposes as well. Do you think there's any truth to Melville talking about how he had to go to 
the underworld to ask permission to use Duchenne for Bob Lafambert? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure whether that's true or not. It sounds like one of those very nice anecdotes, but because there are different accounts of Duchenne's actual implication with the Gestapo, whether he only borrowed money from them or whether he was more implicated than that. It's all fairly mysterious, but certainly it suited Melville's purpose to have someone who not only looked the part, but actually embodied in his person the ambiguities of that period. I really appreciate that Duchenne is older and distinguished and that he has this kind of mock family between Anna and Paolo. And I just appreciate that family dynamic that they have going on here. This is one of the significant aspects of the French gangster film of that period, of the 1950s in particular, which is the way in which the gangs are organized like a family with the the main character as the patriarch, which I think distinguishes the French films to some extent from the American one. And Gabin's character in Risby and Duchesne's character in Bob, this is somebody who's tired, who's at the end, towards the end of his life, who only aspires to lead a sort of comfortable, almost bourgeois life, going to the bars in his area. And then, of course, there is that trope of doing the last job, which we know will be fatal to some extent, of course, because it's part of the genre. But it's such a recurrent motive in the French gangster film that I think it really marks them out from the films, which are much more based on action and tend to have younger male characters. But this patriarchal figure, this older man who wants to do the last job before, who in a way wants to retire and have a quiet life, and as in Bob Le Flambeur, lives in a very nice apartment, King the Normal. It's also part, it's part of actually a much wider type of narrative in French cinema that sort of goes back to the beginning with the patriarchal figure at the center, and usually with a sort of symbolic family with young, usually a young son. So in Bob Le Flambeau, we have Polo, the young man, and a kind of semi-incestuous relationship with a young woman. And what's very conspicuous is that the, those young characters that can only be in the story if they are, they accept to be within the orbit of the patriarch. They're not going to challenge his place. They're just like the son and daughters. And the of course, what is out of the picture is the older woman who tends to be very marginalized. And although it's true that most gangster films marginalize women, it's typically a male genre, not just in French cinema, but I think in, in French cinema in, in particular, there is that sense of a kind of almost like a benevolent figure. And we see him providing for these young people, slapping them when they're not, don't behave uh, as they should. But it's benign behavior. This is the way it's portrayed. And I think it's very specific to the cinema because if you read the books on which those films are based, like such as the work of Auguste Le Breton, who scripted all the book on which Grisby is based, they are much nastier, they're much more violent, they are much more misogynist. And, and so it's a much more bitter and violent world than was the films sort of portray this kind of rather nice and benign. The real families are never there. These people, don't, they don't have homes to go to their wife or their or children. The surrogate home is in the cafe where they meet their characters. So it's, to me, this is one of the charms of the, the gangster films of that period. And Bob Le Flambeau is very typical of that. How did Melville handle women in his films? Generally speaking, Mel, partly because he chose to work with genres that are traditionally masculine, like the gangster film. The majority of his films are portray a world which is mostly male, in which women are 
marginal. They're either like Yvonne, the woman who runs the bar in Bob Le Flambeur, like, again, very benevolent figure. They're not treated as unpleasant or aggressive, but they're really marginalized. Or as in their work, like a sort of their role is to be an alibi and one senses to guarantee the, the heterosexuality of the characters, but they play really a very small role. And some of the films like are practically eliminate women. And then there are two exceptions in his work. And um, one is the a film he made in the 1903, really. His first film, Mare, The Resistance, gives the woman quite a prominent role. Now, it's the adaptation of the book, so it's he's following what that book does. And then he made a melodrama called Cette Lettre, when you read that letter in the 50s again. And we, where a character played by Juliette Greco, the singer Juliette Greco, has quite an important... It's a melodrama, it's a love story, so she has quite an important role. And then... There is the one of my favorite films by Melville, which is Leon, the story of the relationship between a Catholic priest, played by Jean-Paul Belmondo, and a woman who falls in love with him and their discussions about religion and so on. But this is a book that is an adaptation, and it's an adaptation of a novel written by a woman. It's an autobiographical woman. It's an autobiographical novel by a woman who is retelling her story said during the war. But these are, I would say, these are very much, they're the exception. And then everything else, all the great gangster films, Le Doulos, even Un Flic, which has Catherine Deneuve as a big female star, but it's really, a, again, a marginal place. So Melville's, the, his main m movies are really films about men and about masculinity, and he's chose the genres that enabled him to do that. So they, I think they're very interesting studies of, of masculinity, but at the same time, if one looks for important female roles in these films, then what, they're not there. And so it's, I think it's a function of, of the genre, and it's a function of his interest in, in those masculine figures. And the, when one looks at his image with the trench coat and the Stetson and hat, you know, one has this, again, this kind of masculine figure, which at the same time, at the same time was someone who was very cultured, was married all his life. Personally, I don't see Melville as misogynist, but I think it's someone who was interested in a predominantly male culture. Having only been to Paris one time, can you tell me a little bit more as far as the landscape and especially the whole idea of Montmartre and Pigalle and how those were in the 1950s versus today? At the beginning of Bob Le Flamme, there's a very funny moment when we begin in Montmartre. I think first to say it's important to to say that uh, a lot of Bob Le Flamme is shot on location in the streets of Montmartre at Pigalle. And part of the pleasure of watching the film is also to, to see those areas as they were. Of course, Montmartre and Pigalle are very touristic places. Now they tend to be always very crowded. And one of the pleasures in, in, in Bob Le Flambeur, especially at the beginning, is that where we are dawn and we see those empty streets of Paris, it's something which today would be almost impossible to see, even at that time of the day. And the film begins on top of the Montmartre Hill, near the church, and we there's a, a wide panora panoramic shot that shows us the city below and at daybreak. And so it's a very poetic image of Paris. And Melville makes a little joke about saying that is like heaven. And then we see the camera goes down with the cable car that tourists take to, to go up and down and says, and Pigalle is hell. And 
he's in a way only he's making a little joke about the fact that Montmartre's hands the church is particularly associated with the Sacré Coeur Church, and also at the time and. To some extent today, although today, of course, it's a kind of vintage place, it's still like a village. Even today, if you go to Montmartre, you go away from Place du Tertre, where all those painters are and with a million tourists, take a few little streets, and you really could be in a 19th century village. It's quite extraordinary. Of course, it's been preserved in Aspic and to some extent, but... It really looks like a village, and that in the film, sort of little houses and so on. And then Pigan is was the center of sleazy nightlife and prostitution. And in that opening scene in Bob Le Flambeau, we see very clearly all those nightclubs which advertise the most daring striptease and naked women. Even then, in the 1950s, it was a place where kind of slightly naive tourists from the provinces or abroad would come and be fleeced in one of those nightclubs with female hostesses. To some extent, that division is still there, although striptease nightclubs have, don't have the same sort of daring image as they did at the time. But nevertheless, there's still something slightly sleazy about Pigalle. It's part of its image and something more both elevated geographically, but also the sense of Montmartre as this kind of little quiet corner of Paris where you could always be. It's like being in a village. So he's making a little joke of it, but actually it's still like that today. As I say, I think it's like that today in a way that is yeah, it's preserved in that aspect, is very touristy. And many people who know a little bit about French cinema, for example, would remember a film like Amélie, which was made in the early years of the 21st century, and which is also set in Montmartre, and very different visually, much more extreme and in color, but nevertheless preserves also that image of the little streets, the quiet streets, the cafe, the sort of slightly provincial air. But what is fascinating in Bob Le Flambeau is to actually see the real streets and the real cafe in which the characters go. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between Bob and Roger and what your feelings are on that? Bob is presented as a patriarchal figure, a quiet older man who who leads a fairly bourgeois, quiet life, even though he's a gangster and he's about to rob the Casino de Ville. He, his concierge brings his clean clothes and cleans the flat. He has this kind of very... Um, regular quiet life. He's the head of his little family, he's the patriarch, there's the symbolic son Polo, the symbolic daughter, and the young woman he more or less picks up on the streets of Pigalle, but he's not interested in her sexually, and this is quite clear. In fact, he pushes her in Polo's arms, and the really important character in his life, in the sense of the person who's always by his side, is his friend. So the most important person in his life is Roger, who's an acolyte, another minor gangster figure who runs one of the nightclubs that he frequents. Now, Bob Le Flambeur, Le Flambeur is a slang term for gambling, and we see that Bob is a passionate gambler, which is, leads him to his both his doom, but also to earn a great fortune in the casino at the end of the film. And so what is interesting is that there's always that quiet presence by by his side, who is Roger. And even though there is absolutely no in the implication of homosexuality between them, I find it very striking that Roger plays the role of the wife. He's always the voice of reason. He's saying, no, you shouldn't. You should stop gambling now. Come on. You should go to bed. It's late. And you shouldn't do that. And are you sure? And all the time, they're together. And there are quite a, a number of scenes where they're together sitting in the car. And 
looking at each other and one knows that they know each other incredibly well. It's, it's very much an old couple. And very often pe- people have speculated on Melvin as a clo- closet homosexual, as representing homosexuality in his film. And I think that is in a way an exaggeration because in the sense that there's nothing in the films that enables you to say that. But in the same way as the films are all very much about a male world where the significant relationships are between the male characters, again, with no implication of sexuality, certainly not explicitly. The the real couple in Bob Le Flambeur is Bob and Roger, and, and he doesn't seem to have another life in a way. I think that, and it's a, it's a very affectionate relationship, It's but it's like an old couple. I always like his relationship too with Ledru, the inspector, and that relationship that we see later on in Le Dudo between our main character and a police officer as well. I always like that back and forth that he has with those two types of characters. Yes, the relationship with Ledru is also very interesting, and you're quite right. And I see it as both, this is part of this male world where men who observe the same codes understand each other and respect each other. So Ledru respects Bob and Bob respects Ledru. I think it's also an oblique comment on the occupation, the German occupation period, of a period when a time when there was this blurred lines between the police and the criminal underworld. And it's at that point in the film towards the beginning in particular when there's a discussion of Bob by Ledru with one of his inspectors and who says the criminal, isn't he? He's a gangster. And Ledru said, yes, he's a principal guy and, and he saved my life. And it's this network of honorable male figures who might be enemies but are not because they respect the same codes of, of of behavior. What are you working on lately? I'm finishing a book about a French filmmaker called Claude Autant-Lara, who was one of the great figures of the tradition of quality and worked, had a much longer career than Melville. He started in the 20s and went on to the early 70s. But his great period was during the war and in the 50s. And he made great classics like Devil in the Flesh and La Traversée de Paris, which is a great film about the German occupation. And I was, you asking me to talk about Melville reminded me that there's an interesting similarity because both in a way kind of difficult figure, but difficult in their practice, very, very demanding directors, very controlling figures, great filmmakers, but also um, filmmakers who whose life really was their work, that they, although obviously they had a private life, but it's very marginal and everything they did was geared to their filmmaking, although they were terribly different. But nevertheless, I, I suddenly see that there is a similarity between the two. I know you said that the Melville book, you were actually hired to write about Melville, but otherwise, how do you pick your subjects? It's it's an inter- interesting question. In a way, very often, one thing leads to another. And as I say, I'm within the general field of French cinema, I'm particularly interested in popular French cinema. So I've written on filmmakers, uh, on actors like Gabin, filmmakers Melville now, and I've also written quite a lot about Yves Bardot. And the, the Gamma is sort of, because in my thesis, which I didn't actually publish as a book, all the bits went published in different ways, but the chapter on Gamma became the book on Gamma. And then it became part of this book called Stars and Stardom in French Cinema, where I have a sort of a range of stars. And now, again, that's an old book now, and I've been asked to update it, and I should do it, and, and Add some new, more you know, more recent stars like 
Omar Sy, for example. The Bardot came out, well, yes, the bad interest in stars and following Gabin's career, then there were films like En Cas de Malheur, which is a film by Claude Tonlara, which has Bardot and Gabin together. So the only film where they are together, my two favorite stars and French stars together in the same film. But so, yes, it's partly in the case of Melville, he was seeing the samurai. I'm guided by the material in a way. It's what interests me. And they, there's so much, there's quite a lot still to be done about this kind of cinema. There is a feel as a coherence in the sense that a lot of it has to do with those populist filmmakers and stars of, let's say, from the 1930s to the 1960s. So far, it's been really within that area. Professor Vincento, thank you so much for your time. This is great talking with you. Thank you. To, thank you for asking me and for thanks to you watching her again. I've hit rock bottom. I've changed my ways. What's this game, Mr. Buffett? Money game. You look good for men, are you? What age is that? You know, Stone Age. Is it true what they're saying? Well, no, what are they saying? You're back in business. Better than wallpaper, isn't it? They're fakes. I know. The originals are in there. And we crack the ball. Yes. You take your commission. 40%. We've got a real heist and a fake. The only guy who could crack the pregnancy system is the guy who installed it. You. Me. You're facing a murder rap, tough guy. That's quite a surprise. I don't want any more surprises. You have any luck left? I guess we'll soon find out. He doesn't want money. He wants what money can buy. It's not worth the freight charge. It's a freight. What I do to both your faces will definitely be cubist. She goes where she is. No, no. All the people say. Always play the game to the left. Damn the consequences. Shut down in May. But I know I'm gonna change that When I'm back on top, back on top in June, I say that. All right, we are back and we're talking about Bob the Flambert. And I'm sorry to say, folks, but we're going to have to talk about the remake that came out in 2003 by Neil Jordan. I was saying before we started recording that I remembered this one being a lot worse than it is. I rewatched it this morning. I had seen it in 2002, sorry, when it came out at the Toronto Film Festival. I don't remember if I knew that it was a remake of Bob when I walked in, but I definitely realized it very quickly thereafter because we've got, it's weird, we've got character names that are the same, though I think Roger is now the cop. Roger, the name Roger is now the cop, and rather than uh, Bob's good buddy that he has, it's interesting. It's like an it's like a distorted echo of the original one. Did you guys have a, a chance to see The Good Thief? So I haven't seen it in a few years. I think it's something that I 
rented out of sheer boredom. Neil Jordan, you know, I grew up watching a lot of his films like Company of Wolves and Interview with the Vampire. And I think he's often a, he often makes flawed films, but they're always interesting. But this one, I couldn't bring myself to rewatch it. And I, you know, am a very outspoken hater of remakes. So that's, I'm sure, part of it. But I just don't understand why you would remake this movie and give him that kind of like the, that heroin motivation that he has. How depressingly post-war. <laughs> there's really nothing when maybe someone disagrees with me, but I don't think there's very much about heroin that's whimsical. I mean, maybe you could write a film like that. Maybe if you inject it into your funny bone. The level of acting is good. Nick Nolte as Bob now. And I like, and I fuck up his name every time, Keki Cairo playing Roger, playing the LeDru role. Said Tagmagui, I think is the gentleman's name. I always like when he shows up in things and he's Paolo. Yeah, it's got a really good, solid cast to it. But we start to go into this whole thing of now there's not just one heist, there's two heists that are going on. So we have Bob is supposed to be doing the heist at the casino. And with this one, he's very aware that the secret is out, but he's like now using that against the police and against, you know, the the pimp now who's, uh, it's not Raul in this one. Remy, I think, is pimp in this one. And so we've got that plus there's an art heist and there's this whole thing about how bob's got this picasso painting and he tells a story about it every single time he's got it and then we find out later on in the movie that it's actually a fake but you know maybe that's playing in with this art heist but then we find out from the ledrue character that all the artwork in the museum that they're about to rob is fake anyway it goes way too many places and it's got this kind of slick sheen of the early 2000s very desaturate the color a lot of times we do this kind of weird slow motion effect a few times and yeah just nick nolte i mean that he's on heroin at the beginning and then he kicks the heroin halfway through he has to do this whole like train spotting thing i'm surprised there wasn't a baby going across the ceiling i was just like okay you know and he like kicks heroin within like two scenes i'm like oh okay and then the Anne character, I'm like, she's very, very centralized to this film. And I'm just like, I don't care about her that much. I care more about Nick Nolte and I care more about the Roger slash Ledoux character. Well, thank God I never bothered to watch it. <laughs> I knew you'd give me enough reasons not to. And there, there it is, you know, and, and I share Sam's, you know, disdain for remakes in general. I think Neil Jordan made one good gangster film and that was Mona Lisa. So I think with the memory of Bob Hoskins being a pimp chauffeur, good. Mona Lisa is absolutely incredible. And from what I remember of The Good Thief, the problem is that it's one of those movies that just constantly reminds you of better movies you could be watching. Mona Lisa is one of them. An American Friend with the whole art heist thing is another one. And of course, the original. It's just almost feels like the sort of thing where if the plot had been different and it hadn't been so obviously a Bubble Flember remake, maybe it could be better. But I really feel like it fits into that like late 90s, early to mid 2000s wave of 
heist movies that, yeah, that were just like trying to feel really cool. But it's like, you missed the mark. Stop saturating the color and making everything look like that. Like, <laughs> I have about as much interest in watching Neil Jordan remake Bob LaFlambeau as I would Quentin Tarantino remaking Le Samurai, you know, with Samuel L. Jackson. It, it, I mean, I love the idea of Hollywood cannibalizing the French gangster film. You know, there is a, a delicious irony about it. But, uh, I mean, the, the conversation between American crime and French crime cinema had been going a long time before the war and continued on until the, the you know, un, until the glory days of Melville's final films in the 70s. There's still that dialogue between those two uh, separate but similar cultures. But then I think the conversation's gone on too long. And I think The Good Thief represents the nadir of that conversation, as far as I'm concerned, not having watched it and never needing to. That's a really good point. And also that you could even argue that that conversation goes all the way back to Edgar Allan Poe writing his first detective stories, which refer back to French literature. And it just, it's sort of like... Murders in the room all... Totally, totally inspired by French fiction. And so it's like it starts in the 1800s with fiction and and maybe it's done now you mentioned tarantino and like the thing that people were tripping over themselves about was in reservoir dogs they don't show the robbery isn't that just amazing they don't show the robbery and it's like yeah we've been talking about this heist film where there's no heist in it for the last hour and a half here yeah this has happened before folks it's really okay and we are in with the good thief we are in a post tarantino world where we've had Reservoir Dogs, we've had Jackie Brown, we've had Pulp Fiction. And so the coolness factor, and plus all of the Tarantino clones that went on afterwards. So by the time we get to this picture, it's just like, okay, yeah, I've seen all this stuff before. Like you said, I'd rather be watching so many of these other movies. There's, there's a ton of great French gangster films out there that I'd much rather be seeing than watching this remake of Bob Flambeur. And the problem with remake-itis is that those films, to a generation not schooled in the older stuff, become the standards. You know, they replace the films that they'd uh, cannibalized in the first place. And, and so that's the danger of not doing your homework or not having an inquisitive and adventurous backward-looking glance into film history. You think that these flashy remakes it and it's quite dangerous. It's also sad to think that somebody would maybe watch The Good Thief and think, okay, this is fun, and then never even know that Bobble Schlumber exists. Yeah, and you get to The Good Thief, and you hear even Leonard Cohen on the uh, soundtrack, and you're just like, oh, Leonard Cohen on a soundtrack, just like Natural Born Killers. And it's like, yeah, uh, trust me, Leonard Cohen has done stuff before Natural Born Killers. He he was around for a few years. Did you hear that new singer, Leonard Cohen? Yeah. Yeah. He even did a cover of that Concrete Blonde song. And even the end of the movie, the end of The Good Thief, is Bono doing a cover of That's Life, which was obviously made famous by Frank Sinatra. And you're just like, oh, I'd re- rather be watching Ocean's Eleven then. Okay. I would much rather be living in a universe where instead of you two getting famous, uh, 
Gamma Friday's band, the the Virgin Prunes, became world renowned. Like you two are a blight on humanity. I haven't even told you. At one point, Andrew, there's a twin gag. The Polish twins show up, and I don't know if that really ever plays out in the movie. Like allegedly, there's this whole other plot that's going on, and I don't know if I just wasn't paying attention or just didn't care because. I'm just like, okay, now there's twins involved and somehow they're going to help rob the casino while Bob is actually winning. Yeah. Who gives a shit? And that is also a quite annoying problem of those 2000s crime movies is they include a lot of these like flashy elements like the sort of twins gag that it's not crucial to the story and we never return to it. It's just like, oh, here's this cool thing to keep your attention for two minutes. So annoying. Such bad storytelling. It's like in the 2000s, you know, you, you'd had 10 years of the, the sons of Tarantino and everyone was kind of getting a little used to the, that level. And so you had to jack the level of excitement up in the films and everything became like, you know, watching video games on you know, meth just became hyper, <laughs> hyper, you know what I mean? Like beyond hyper. And I can't even imagine what going to the movie, going to the cinemas to watch those pieces of shit would be like, because, you know, unless you're on Ritalin, uh, none of it w- would even be stomachable. Yeah. I, I'm trying to remember when Smoke and Aces came out, because I think that was kind of the, the ultimate of that where, yeah, to your point, oh. I was just like, am I on something? That was a hyper hyper. That's the one I was thinking of. That's exactly it. There's also that uh, that one, what is it called? Lucky Number Slevin. Oh, God. I saw that in the theater. Jesus Christ. Oh. All right, guys. Let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Ça 
That's right. We'll be back next week with an episode on Marcel Carne's Children of Paradise. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Sam and Andrew. So, Andrew, what's been keeping you busy lately, sir? Touring my new punk rock music documentary, Pub the Movie. That kicks off its Australian theatrical season in about three days. Uh, so so that, that that's going to be a whirlwind, you know, five, five to six weeks running around Australia, showing the story of this crazed um, Melbourne punk rocker and cartoonist who captured his life in cartoon form for about 35 years in a weekly pub strip weekly cartoon strip called pub so it's a a fascinating story about a man his pencil and the crazed punk rock music universe that swirled around him for 40 years and then i've just started on my new documentary series called film safari i started shooting an episode in king's cross you know the red light district of sydney uh, where these two amazing women who are now in their 70s and 80s used to make porn films in King's Cross in the early 70s. That's the, the the great untold story of Australian cinema right there in the midst of the Pigal of Sydney, King's Cross, yeah. And then, of course, one of the episodes is Film Safari El Maria, where Sam and I run around Spaghetti Western towns going, oh my God, this is where they shot Bullet for the General, where I'll just be squeezing my life-size John Maria pillow, John Maria Volante yeah. pillow, crying, crying into <laughs> Alex Cox's lapel because Alex said he's keen. Yes. Yeah. And thank you, Mike, for the hookup. Oh, yeah. You got it. I'm glad I'd play a part <laughs> in this. That's, that's all I could ask. Well, when you do your episode on Detroit and we start talking about Clarence in Alabama, you can shoot me right in the head. If you haven't already been shot by a stray bullet because Detroit, oh, my God. And Sam, what's the latest with you, please? Well, I should mention my podcast, which is the Death Nerve. As of now, our most recent episode was a Valentine's Day one on necrophilia movies. Um, And then I've had so many things come out recently in terms of commentaries, but things sort of related to Bob LaFlamber. I did a commentary for the Kino release of this Alan, very strange Alan Ladd movie called Lucky Jordan about this gangster trying to dodge the draft who winds up uncovering a Nazi plot because, you know, you can't have a Hollywood movie from the 40s without someone being a good American. And I also contributed a commentary to this noir adjacent movie called rope of sand which has a very you know sweaty burt lancaster in existential angst in the desert thank you so much folks for being on the show thanks to everybody for listening if you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth check out some of the other shows i work on they are all available at weirdingwaymedia.com thanks especially to our patreon community if you want to join the community visit patreon.com slash projection booth every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.